0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. May you find in the garden of spirituality a flower whose fragrances suit you. We're going to be discussing the various gods and goddesses in the pantheon of the Eastern schools of philosophy. Now, there are various traditions with various gods and goddesses and various techniques for how to work with them. So my intention for today's class is to share with you a few of those traditions and give you a few practical tools um, to start working with deities to incorporate this kind of practice into your yoga. Welcome Mara, good to see you. And that's Kristen, Lily, welcome. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through the garden and you will choose your favorite flowers, so to speak. So I'll just tell you about various different deities, and we'll see which ones resonate with you, and we'll have a discussion at the end, um, unpacking it more. Now, before we begin though, let's just back up a little and ask what it is exactly um, to call something a deity. So what is a deity? What is a god or what is a goddess? And in asking this question, we might be able to tease out why we would want to work with them. So we should start with the Rig Veda or the Vedas. And as you know, the Vedas are the world's oldest litany, litany being a series of rites or discursive thought about theological subjects. So it dates to around 7,000 BCE by some liberal estimates and more conservative estimates date it to about 3,800 BCE. But it's a corpus- of uh, rites and rituals, and they talk about various forces of nature personified as gods and goddesses. Now, yes, Austin, of course. Now, one thing I want to make very clear, in the Vedas, while there are many names, gods and goddesses of every sort, there is a flavor of monotheism that pervades the entire Vedas especially in the Rig Veda there are verses here and there that point to a supreme transcendental ultimate reality from which the gods and goddesses emanate so even in the Rig Veda there is an implicit concession that gods and goddesses do not have reality in of themselves rather they have a dependent reality that derives from some, overarching, unitary reality. So the Rig Veda waxes lyrical in this very monotheistic sense. Here's the paradox, though. While there are little glimpses of this monotheism, most of it comes off incredibly polytheistic. Poly meaning many and theistic meaning many gods. So what are the gods of the Rig Veda? Simply put, they are forces of nature personified. So the god of the wind a powerful force that shakes the trees and moves the cloud. His name is Vayu, the god of the ocean, powerful, mysterious Poseidon figure. His name is Varuna, bestowing mysterious gifts and weapons and teaching secrets. The god of fire, a a very important, pivotal point for civilizations in the Indus Valley, the discovery and use of fire. That god was Agni the fire god central to the vedic fire ceremony you had gods like surya the sun god and chandra the moon god basically every natural event you could point to there was probably an associated deity so in the beginning what you get is a kind of animistic approach where you know you see forces of nature they are wild and untamed you know your life depends on working with these forces of nature, but you as a human have a poetic tendency to create a character or to personify that which seems um, illusory or difficult to deal with. So let's just right now recognize this inherent poetic quality that we have as human beings to name things, to create characters, to personify. This is a very beautiful faculty about being human because it allows us to interact with things on a very humanistic level, things that otherwise might be incomprehensible and unable, unapproachable or unassailable in any other way. So at this juncture, I just want to offer that Hinduism, uh, and that word is a little bit of a misnomer as you'll soon come to see, but uh, Indus Valley civilizations, their first articulation of God might've been an animistic personification of natural forces. Um, lyric says, reminds me of kids giving life to toys and stuffed animals. Precisely right. It's just inherent. I, I name my plants, you know, it's just something in us. So we're giving these names to these forces. And over time, those names, they, they carry significant weight. And we're going to talk about Carl Jung in a little bit and archetypes and the subconscious mind. But for now, we don't really get a sense yet of the interior world. People are just dealing with this sometimes hostile, sometimes benevolent thing they call nature. And in the Vedas, we're interested in how to deal with nature, how to uh, invoke certain deities to achieve certain ends. What spells or mantras can we use? So mantra, in the Vedic sense, is a specific um, chant or incantation that brings a certain deity to your aid. And we're going to talk about mantras a lot today because I'm going to describe how you can call deities into your consciousness. And the central use is mantras, that's a little teaser. So these Vedic rites involved spells and incantations to cajole nature into being nice. The word for it is rasa. Nature had a certain rasa, meaning juice. You wanted rain, you wanted crops. You wanted minerals. So you deal with these nature gods in order that you might get the rasa, you know. Now, as Vedic philosophy starts to develop, three functions become apparent in nature. So there are three things that happen in nature. The first thing is creation. The second thing, second thing is maintenance. And the final thing is destruction. So wherever you look, Every natural system exhibits these three properties, one after the other. So looking around at nature, something's either being created, a created thing is either being maintained or preserved or sustained, and then it's being destroyed. So these are the only three things that happen. Your own life is a testament to these three forces. You were create, You were born, so there was an act of creation there. You came into nature. Your lifespan is an act of maintenance, or uh, sustenance, and finally, you know, you return from whence you came destruction. These three forces then were personified by three very important gods. Um, One of them is Brahma. This is the god of creation. The second is Vishnu. This is the god of maintenance or the preserver. And the final one is Shiva, the god of destruction. So these three names kind of bubble up to the surface in the Vedas, and they get used to mean the three principal deities, meaning the three principal functions of nature. Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. There's a funny joke, the word God, the G stands for generator, as in creator, Brahma, the O stands for operator, as in Vishnu, preserving, and the D stands for destroyer, meaning Shiva. So you have a trinity here. You have uh, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Now, I want to step aside a little bit and suggest an alternative account. A lot of Indic scholars will tell you that, okay, Shiva, you know, he's a Vedic God. His name is Rudra, meaning howler. Vishnu, he's a Vedic God. And Brahma, these are gods that exist in the Vedas that over time just bubbled up to the surface. This is the gods that people preferred and they became kind of the, the popular ones. You know, you had your Taylor Swifts of the time. They were just the hits. And there are lots of other gods. People just weren't that interested in them. These were the ones that mattered. So a lot of people will tell you that. Um, My alternative account is I don't think this is actually true. I think in the Vedic time, the most important gods were gods like Savitri or Surya, sun gods. There were gods that represented vital forces. And soon Vedic cultures started to come in contact with other cultures in India. So when the Vedic cultures of Northern India start interacting with Southern Indians, you get the interjection of Southern Indian gods. And there are a lot of Indic philosophers that think Shiva is actually a Southern Indian interjection into the Vedas. And this will be important for today's lecture because I'll be talking a lot about Shiva. And You'll have to excuse me as a devoted Saivite. This is my tendency. So we'll be talking a lot about Shiva, the God Shiva and his family. Um, But a lot of theories suggest that Shiva was interjected from the south into a northern pantheon. So that's the first note. The second thing to notice is that there were philosophers in the Indus Valley around 3000 BCE who were starting to think, oh, these natural forces that happen also happen in me. So people are starting to realize there is wind Value, but there's also wind in my body, my breath. Every time I cough, hiccup, laugh, fart, wind, It's it's there's a movement in my body that corresponds to the movement in the sky. There is heat in my belly. So when I eat food, I feel a heat in my belly. And in fact, when this heat is low, I feel um, rather... Unmotivated. I don't have the will to pursue my ambition. So this Agni, this physical fire, started to become more of an internal metabolic heat in the belly. You see what's going on here? The philosophers in the civilization were starting to see the external world as a mirror for their internal world. So now the philosophers are more interested with inner processes, breath fire in the belly. Um, in other words, psychic forms. So the focus became what's going on inside me, you know? And that that's when Indian philosophy gets really interesting. Because here's what I'm going to offer to you now. In Indian philosophy, at the heart of it, we don't actually believe gods exist independently. We don't think philosophically that they are out there. That they are actual independent aspects of reality that sit in the sky and keep a naughty or nice list. You know, you cannot even if I got a penny for every time one of my friends here in America texted me asking me what the right offering for Ganesha was because she was afraid she'd be cursed. I would be a very, very rich fellow you know, but people freak out. They freak out about the proper way to worship gods. What's taboo? If I put wine in front of Kali, will she attack me? As if there were these beings in the sky keeping a naughty or nice list, you know? Here's why I'm arguing that Indian philosophy doesn't consider this to be the case. At the heart of Indian philosophy, especially during this Upanishadic era around 3000 BCE, there is the understanding that everything you see around you is a projection of your inner reality. This is very early quantum mechanics, right? Very early observation theory, where Max Planck says we don't live in an observatory universe, we live in a precipitory universe. Similar along those lines, these Indian philosophers were saying what you see is mainly a projection of what's going on inside. So you can imagine, you know, a person who um, deeply in their heart believes this world is a cold and harsh place and everyone is mean, that's what they're going to get. You know, when they go to the grocery store, they're going to notice people who are being mean to them. You know, are there mean people in the world? Maybe not. It's just that their filtering mechanism has created such a world for them to live in. You know, So in Upanishadic philosophy, there's this understanding that we as uh, beings filter reality and as such project a reality out that might not actually be there. So similarly, those gods don't have independent reality. They're projected out. That means, much like the Upanishadic seers proposed, the gods and goddesses we are talking about today are inner psychic forces. Yeah. As soon as Christina stopped saying men ain't shit, a good man actually walked into my life. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that funny? So it's really our filtering systems. So with that in mind, Indian philosophy states this, gods and goddesses are metaphors. That's it. They are poetic devices that we use To understand psychic forces that otherwise would be too indirect, too subtle, too behind the scenes to really approach directly, you know? So we dress them up, we create characters in order that we might work with these psychic forces. So in today's lecture, when I propose that we work with deities, what I'm actually saying is that we use a certain set of symbols and allegory in order to work with our psychic forces. Yeah, so that's the thesis of today's talk. And now we can start talking about the gods. Actually, sorry to keep you waiting right before we do that. One more note. Um, this happens also in the in the Jewish faiths and in the Christian faiths. The Jewish faith is in, in, intensely monotheistic, right? It's one of the central tenets of Judaism. It's that it's monotheistic. But in the Old Testament, in the Torah, God... Appears in different names. Isn't that interesting? Here are a few examples. Sometimes God appears as El, sometimes Elohim, sometimes Shaddai El Kai, sometimes um uh sometimes the unspeakable name Adonai, yes, Adonai, Adonai, Ha Aretz, you know, vav Vavhe, sometimes Yahweh. So there are different names used for God. And there are a lot of scholars that actually suggest there is intentionality here because each of those names means something, you know, like Malik means the King or each of those names carries a certain connotation. Some might even say, and here's the interesting thing, function. Each name implies a certain function of God with regards to the context in which it is appearing, you know? So in that way, You can see Judaism as a monotheistic faith with differentiated aspects of the divine. You know, Christianity does the same, perhaps with angels. I want to propose that Vedic philosophy is also like this. There is one unitary monotheistic being. That being is not a noun. That being is a verb, and it turns out that we are it, as you'll soon discover. Um, But that being expresses itself in many ways, as you yourself can confirm right now. While Emily might be one person, I might meet six if I hung out with her over a period of like a week, which I wish I could do. We live too far away. (laughs) Maybe many more, right? But the interesting thing is that I would get the wonderful delight to see and experience different Emilys. You know, Emily, the yoga teacher, Emily, the actor, Emily, the, you know, different parts of Emily. Each of those are Emily quintessentially, but it's delightful to enjoy different expressions. You know, there are a lot of philosophers that suggest um, Hinduism, and we'll talk about why that word is a little, a little bit of a misnomer in a bit. Hinduism is not a polytheistic faith, neither is it a monotheistic faith. So the word for Hinduism actually is Henotheistic. H-E-N-O, theistic. Theistic meaning God, hino meaning it's monotheistic, but different aspects of the divine become more prominent at different times. So they are interchangeable. You can use Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma interchangeably. The names might point to one singular reality, you know. So that's some of the more technical scholarly notes. Yoga itself, though, yoga is not a religion. Yoga is the science of religion. Yoga is less interested in religious belief systems as it is in the um, subtle or esoteric principles behind those belief systems. That's why you have a Buddhist yoga, a Jain yoga, and a Hindu yoga. So there there needs to be made a distinction here. The path of yoga itself does not conform to the gods that I'm going to be talking about today, but it is fairly friendly to almost all systems. So yoga can kind of be plugged in to any existing religious system of belief. And the reason this is so is because in the yoga sutra that Patanjali writes or or puts together in about 300-something BCE, There is a concession that there is something called a Vishesha Purusha, which means the great supreme soul. And that soul, that Vishesha Purusha, is called Ishvara. And that word simply means lord or lady. It's not even that gendered, actually. It's just that guy, that gal, that thing, you know. In a sense, you can plug into that word whatever you want. You can use Ishvara um, and say Shiva. Vishnu, Akhla, you could say um, the father, whatever. Um, and that's the interesting thing about yoga. It attenuates itself to any belief system that you plug it into. The belief system that we're going to be talking about today, and I hope to draw in some Greek and Roman influences, but the belief system that we're going to be talking about today, I don't want to use the word belief system, but rather um, the set of symbols that we're going to be working with today comes from the Indus Valley Hindu tradition. This word is deeply, deeply uh, missing the point because it's a colonial word, right? Hinduism is a word coined by colonial England to conglomerate a vast plethora of schools, many of which have nothing to do with one another. You know, so there are some schools of Hinduism that are polytheistic. And there are some schools like non-dual Shaiva Tantra from southern India that are strictly monotheistic. Yet both are called Hinduism. How is this? Now, the beautiful thing is that each of these schools don't go to war with one another. That's the beautiful thing about India. Recent times, there's been some dispute between the Islamic and Hindu faiths because of um, nationalist sentiments that are quite new to India. But for a vast majority of India's history, even you know, when the Mughals invaded in the 10th century, 11th century, even then, there was kind of a friendly, friendly relationship between Islam and Hinduism. As you will see in the writings of the poet Kabir, Kabir is a beautiful poet from north, northeast and northwest India who would write poems. In some sense, he would sound like a Sufi Muslim. And in the other sense, he would sound like a yogi. And, you know, he truly is the epitome of what India must have been like in the 10th century. All these schools of thought, while they were so different, found a way to get along. So in that sense, the motto of, oh, yes, farewell lyric. It was great to see you all um, today. But the, the motto of Hinduism, we can say, if Hinduism is indeed a thing, is unity in diversity. Yeah. That's what it is unity in diversity. So we don't want to get rid of the diversity. We don't want to just say there's only one God. You cannot give that God an image, a name. Um, you cannot address that God. Um, it's just beyond anything you can imagine. That's one approach. But Hinduism doesn't often take that approach. Neither does it take the approach that there are many gods and each of them are independently real. It's somewhere in between where it says there is one God, but it is delightful that that God can appear to different people in different garbs, in different languages, you know, and and everyone has a right to worship in their own way. Now, the wisdom of this is that each of you have your own spiritual proclivity. So the way Anisha is going to become enlightened is very different from the way um, Anisha's friend is going to become enlightened. And that means different deities will appeal differently to them. So maybe Anisha works with Durga. I don't know. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. So maybe Anisha works with Durga, right? That deity might not work for Anisha's friend. Anish's friend might prefer the Buddha, you know? So with that being said, let's go to the toy store. Let's see what um, deities there are for us to work with and how we can work with them. All right. So here's part two. All the preamble is done. Now, part two, let's talk about the deities themselves. So I'll start with Shiva, my favorite deity, my personal deity. And um, there's a funny story, actually. A man was very devoted to Shiva, great yogi. Every day he practiced his yoga. And his only goal in his life was to see his personal deity. He wanted to see Shiva. That was his goal. So he would meditate and worship and practice his yoga, fierce practitioner. One night while he was sleeping, the god Shiva appeared to him in a dream. And he said, yes, yes, yes. You've been working so hard. What do you want and the guy says, you know, in the dream, my Lord, I, I just want to see you. Show me yourself in, 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 in flesh, in person. I want to see you. And Shiva says very kindly, okay, tomorrow, go to the marketplace. I'll be there. Like, okay. How will I know to find you? And he says, okay, go to the marketplace. When you see the man with no head, that's me. You'll know that's me. And the guy gets excited. He's ready. He wakes up and he, he waits for the marketplace to get started in the morning. And he runs down there and he's looking around for the man with no head, just as Shiva told him, you know, he's looking, that person has a head, that person has a head. Everyone's got a head. He He's quite confused. He's quite angry. He's like, where, where are you, my Lord? He's looking. Do you know who's the only person who doesn't have a head? <laughs> is him, is me. He's the only one without the head because he's looking. He's the one that's looking. If I look, I can only really see up to here, barring mirrors, you know? And mirrors are very indirect way of knowing anyway. So he's the headless one. And this story of the headless Shiva is a beloved story in uh, non-duality, which we'll talk about someday. Not today, but someday. Because it demonstrates that you can't look for the gods out there. They're in you. And when you find them in you, then you start to see them all around. You know, it's a nice story about Shiva. So you can—I I was debating whether or not I should screen share and show you images of each of these deities, but I don't think that would be too productive, only because there's so many different art traditions, and uh, I want to open the floor for exploration on your own. So you know, you can Google image the name Shiva, S H I B A, and just look at all the different art. The image of the deity is as important as the stories about the deity. In fact, you know, pictures, they're worth a thousand words. The image is very intentional. So every symbol that appears in the image of that deity is intentional. It has a purpose. It conveys to the subconscious mind a certain idea. So Shiva, what do we know about this figure? For one, he is the ultimate hippie. He is the world's first dropout. Renunciation is his um, calling card, and he's often depicted seated in a meditation pose with long flowing hair running down his shoulders. He's often bare chested, depicted with snakes around his neck and his arms. In his matted locks, he has uh, a uh, crescent moon tucked into his hair, and usually you will see an open mouth and water spilling out from the top of his hair. He often sits on a tiger skin mat and he's usually depicted being surrounded by scorpions, snakes, spiders, creepy things. His place of residence is high up on Mount Kailash in the Himalayas, far away from humanity. He sits. And what does he do? Shiva is notorious for doing nothing. That's his thing. He sits and he meditates. And the thing about Shiva is that he experiences tremendous states of bliss. So often he's depicted with his eyes half closed, sitting and just kind of blissed out. He's often wrongly attributed to uh, a deity representing ganja or or marijuana or psychedelics. Um, That comes much later. In truth, the earliest conceptions of Shiva depict him in pure meditative bliss, unadulterated by any substance. He's just achieving it. He's self-sustaining. So a few things to unpack here. First, Shiva's inactivity. He sits and he does nothing. This is already a lesson in yoga. Because you know, as you've heard me say many times before in previous classes, the work of yoga is the stilling of the movements of the mind. Yoga vritti nirodha. Yoga is the quieting of the mind. And this is a rather profound thing. It's not just quieting the mind so you can relax a bit. No, it's a very radical act to sit so still that your mind doesn't move, your body doesn't move, your breath doesn't move. That's death. And Shiva has mastered death. Often he's depicted covered in ashes. He's often seen as the god of the grave. And as we mentioned earlier, the god of destruction. And it's something very morbid there, but in yoga, we love destruction because destruction is the destruction of false ideas of self, false concepts like time or false identities like the ego. We're tearing down or destroying that which no longer serves us. In other words, we are dying to be born anew, a concept that appears all throughout Christianity die to achieve eternal life. So in that sense, Shiva is like an Osiris figure. He is master death. He sits at the top of the mountain, meditating in perfect bliss, actionless. And that is his great achievement. And often the stories around Shiva are gods trying to get him to help them, but he just doesn't want to. He he has no interest in the affairs of men or gods. Total recluse, Total dropout. And uh, the paradox here is that by sitting, by meditating, he has summoned up a tremendous amount of rasa or juice or power. And all that power is desirable to the other gods. So they try to seduce him. They try to steal it from him. Demons uh, are known to find ways into his orifices to try to get this rasa. You know, it's very interesting The thing about the orifices is actually a little story involving the shat karmas. I'm sure some of you have read the Hatha Yoga Pradipaka. You'll know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, don't worry about it. So anyway, this is this being. The tiger skin mat that he sits upon represents the animal nature that he has conquered. He's sitting on top of it. He's surrounded by wild animals to demonstrate that the yogi has nothing to fear from nature because she has mastered it. In fact, she is so nonviolent. She has mastered ahimsa. She is so peaceful in of herself that animals aren't freaked out by her and they won't attack her. And you'll know the dog will bark when it senses that in you there is some disturbance. And there's a, you know, Ramda says his teacher told him snakes, no heart. Isn't that beautiful? Snakes, no heart. Animals are incredibly attuned to the frequency that you're putting out. And if there's disturbance in you, you're at risk of an animal stinging you, biting you, attacking you. In yogic legend, if you master ahimsa, if you master nonviolence, your vibe is so fresh that the animals will leave you alone. The tigers will come and sit next to you peacefully. So that's why Shiva is often seen surrounded by dangerous animals, centipedes, scorpions. He has nothing to fear from them. He has a crescent moon because he's often known as the lord of crooked things. Isn't that beautiful? The idea here is that when you become spiritual, you start to overwrite the narratives of who you think you are, And what you should be doing in this world narratives that were carefully handed to you by a society, maybe they meant well, but a society largely interested in controlling you in in having you fit in to a societal structure that guaranteed the survival of the whole. And sometimes in the pursuit of the group, the individual is sacrificed. So your individual self-expression, your ability to become enlightened is sometimes at odds with the goal of civilization. And, and sometimes that can be uh, expressed in the sense of anti-Darwinism. Your desire to go and meditate might uh, extricate you from the gene pool if you really do decide to go off into the mountains and renounce all things, you know? So however level whatever level of spirituality you're at if your spirituality is genuine sooner or later it will start to change you and for a time that will ruffle feathers you know you run the risk of being different and that's why shiva champions that he champions um the crooked things that which is seen as unworthy by society but that you know to be truly valuable So he sits there with the crooked moon in his hair. The Ganga, the sacred river of India is said to flow through the matted locks of his hair. And that's why bathing the Ganga is so purifying. And so he sits, he's meditating. His uh, abode is high in the Himalayas. Now, the reason I say that Shiva is an interjection from southern India into a northern Indian pantheon is because often he's seen as an outcast um, and he often steps on a lot of toes. So here's a story. There is a god Daksha. Daksha is kind of like a Zeus figure. He's a very uh prim and proper god, if you will. He's like the Beatles. Like your parents like when you listen to the Beatles. He's not too rebellious. He's nice, you know. Everybody likes Daksha. Shiva is like the Rolling Stones. You know, parents freak out when you're listening to the Zeppelin, Rolling Stones kind of stuff. So, anyway, there's a story. Daksha has a meeting for all the gods, and all the gods are there in this great hall. He comes in, and all the gods get up to uh, worship Daksha, to, to give him his respects, except for Shiva. Why? Is Shiva trying to uh, make a point? No, no, no. He's above that. Is Shiva trying to snub Daksha? No, no, no. He doesn't care. He's indifferent. He's absolutely engrossed in his own meditation. In fact, he's so absorbed in his own bliss that he doesn't even notice Daksha is there at all. So guess what? Daksha gets incredibly upset. You know, he's all flustered and he casts Shiva out. And he's like, this is a pariah deity. You can see some of the political intrigue going on here as North meets South and there's some kind of political tensions. But they try to cast Shiva out. So off he goes. Here's the ironic thing, though. Daksha's daughter, when she comes of age, of course, she's going to fall in love with Shiva, right? I mean, what adolescent girl does not fawn after the man that her father hates? (laughs) So her name is Sati, and she runs off to meet Shiva, and they fall blissfully in love. And that's a beautiful thing, because Shiva is moved by Sati's beauty and he comes out of his meditation and he falls in love with Sati and there they are in perfect bliss. And what happens one day is that the gods are having this celebration, it's like a party or a feast or a wedding or something. And Sati says to her husband, Shiva, don't you think we should go to the the party? You know, all the other gods are going to be there. And Shiva's like, ah, don't bother me with that kind of stuff. You know, I don't like going to those things. They're so stuffy. Let's just sit here in our beautiful Himalayan paradise and let's just meditate. And she's like, no, no, no. I think we should really go. Uh, If you're not coming, I'm going. And he's like, fine. So she gets up and she goes off to the party. When she gets to the party, you know what she sees? They didn't prepare a space for Shiva. They just neglected. And she was so embarrassed by that, so offended that they didn't put a place for Shiva to be should he come. So great a God is Shiva to be neglected at the party. So in protest, she jumps into the fire and kills herself. <laughs> we Indians are known for our melodrama, <laughs> if you've seen any Bollywood movies. But that, that's kind of the origin story of that rather barbaric, archaic tradition of widows jumping into the fire. It's called sati, you know, happened in India a long time ago. When you lose your husband, it's just something that women did back then. Melodramatic, maybe. I don't know. So she jumps into the fire and she dies. Word of this gets back to Shiva. And for the first time, this god of perfect tranquility loses his cool. And you know what he does? He starts to pull at his hair and he pulls out a mat of his long hair and he throws it on the ground. And because of his rage, it causes the mat of hair to spawn into a demon king. And his name is Vira Badra. Badra means hero. Veera means, oh sorry, Veera means hero. Badra means matted lock. So matted lock hero. And you know what Veera Bhadra does? He takes an army of demons, goes to Daksha's house, and kills everyone. It's like a Game of Thrones red wedding scene. Cuts off all their heads, kills them all. And Shiva, howling in rage, starts to destroy the world. He just goes ape shit on reality and he starts rending and destroying. Finally, Vishnu has to go and pacify him, you know? But this is interesting because now you see another side to Shiva. Shiva doesn't just sit and meditate. He's also intensely passionate about stuff. He is energetic, powerful. He moves. So this is an interesting story because I'm sure you've practiced in your asana practice Virabhadrasana, the pose. Virabhadrasana one, two, and three. The translation is not actually hero's pose. uh, Sorry, warrior pose. It's actually matted lock hero pose in reference to this myth. So every time you're doing Veerabhadra, you're, you're bringing to your practice the ferocity of the demon king that Shiva summoned, you know? So Shiva is often seen as like the king of the demons. He hangs out with goblins, you know, more, in, more in the theme of being an outsider deity. So he is depicted as a very still, meditating deity, but he's also depicted as a very energetic, powerful, exuberant, ecstatic deity. So while he sits He also dances, you know, so now you have another version of Shiva, the dancing Shiva. So I actually might be able to show you the little, I'm sure you've seen this, the Nataraja. We'll talk about the Nataraja a bit because each of the symbols represents something, but now you get a dancing Shiva. So Shiva has these two aspects and people choose to worship him sometimes as the seated meditation figure, sometimes as the ecstatic dancing figure, sometimes as both. Now, I want to say this though, Shiva traditions or Shaiva traditions are notoriously uh, monotheistic, not just that, they are non-dualistic. So in that sense uh, of the word non-dualism, I mean to say Shaivites often believe that there's only one thing that exists in the universe, and that is you. You as the supreme soul, not you as the ego or small self, but you as a Uh, witness to the the creation of reality. And because this being is so abstract, Shaivas often represent Shiva as a lingam, which is a phallus-looking stone put into a yoni, which is kind of like, funny, the English word for it is yonic, uh, which comes from the Indian yoni to mean vaginal shape. So this Yoni and Lingam is often seen as a depiction of Shiva because he is the meeting of yin and yang. He is the reconciliation of two opposites. So Shiva is often depicted abstractly. Just note something to note. So this is Shiva. You know, you will be called to Shiva if you, A, um, aren't, if you feel like hard work versus grace, you're more likely to opt for the hard work rather than wait around for grace. Shiva is a very fierce and exacting deity, demanding that you put in the work. Shiva will appeal to you if you're um, a social outsider or an outcast, or you like being deviant, or you're into that rock and roll stuff. Shiva is a very rock and roll deity. So here's a second story. Um, Shiva loses his first wife. He finally gets pacified. And the thing about yogis is that after meditating for a certain period of time, you start to become beautiful. You know, it's physiological, like the wrinkles leave your face. Your forehead starts to lengthen. Um, There's a sort of vitality to you, a certain vibe that you put out. Shiva, in that sense, is very attractive. Women swoon whenever they they see see Shiva walking by. It's kind of a stud. And so you'll roam sometimes through the worlds of men. And one day, there's a story. A woman was walking up the mountain and she saw Shiva meditating. She fell in love. But unlike other women who fell in love with Shiva and realized he was unattainable because all he does is meditate, this woman decided to sit there and meditate also in order to win his affection. So she sat there and meditated and meditated and meditated. She out-meditated Shiva. (laughs) She meditated so fiercely that she managed to harness the forces of the universe. And mythologically, she starts to, um, like, the, 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 the balance of nature starts to become threatened, you know, because there's just too much power now. And she's too much of a badass for the world to handle. And so Shiva feels this disturbance in the force, if you will, and he opens his eyes, which for Shiva and meditation is a big deal. And he gazes upon this woman and he goes, who are you woman who sits and out meditates me and he falls in love and that woman is parvati you know so that's that's the name given to shiva's second wife and once he falls in love you know he's he's a hopeless romantic the two of them are inseparable shiva and parvati and they spend their time in love and there's a lot of very funny stories between the two of them Uh, Much like lovers in love, there are quarrels, you know, lovers quarrels. So Shiva is notoriously sometimes a deadbeat husband, you know, he goes off and he meditates and he neglects her and then she feeling neglected will leave him and then he misses her and will go look for her. All of this is, of course, an esoteric story of the crown chakra looking for the root chakra. We talked about that a few classes ago, where the root chakra wants to climb up to the crown chakra, sati or Parvati. she wants to go to him, he wants to come down to her. So where do the two of them meet? In the heart. It's a true story of love. The descent of spirituality into matter and the spiritualizing of matter up into spirit, the meeting point is love in the heart. So it's a very esoteric story between Shiva and Parvati. I'll tell you one. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. We'll talk a little bit about it later. It's a very tantric story, um, but I have to gloss over it in the interest of time. So Shiva and Parvati, they have all these stories. I'll tell you another one. One day, oh, and, and here's the thing. They often spend their time debating philosophy, you know, discussing the Vedas. So there's a story in which Shiva is just talking philosophy at Parvati and she's bored. So she starts to, you know, look away. And Shiva goes, have I lost your attention? wow, you have no interest in philosophy whatsoever. You're no better than a common fisherwoman. She goes, oh yeah? And so she takes an incarnation as a fisherwoman. (laughs) And he misses her so much that he takes an incarnation as a fisher man trying to win the daughter of the chieftain of the village. So there are all these cute stories between the two of them. Now, the story that's important right now is Shiva goes away to meditate for a while, perhaps for years or aeons, As was his nature. Parvati gets lonely and decides to make a son. Out of clay, she fashions the son. Much like Adam is fashioned, huh? Anyway, she fashions the son, she makes him out of clay, and he's a beautiful boy, a very um, uh, strong, healthy powerful lad, very young lad, and she names him, we don't have a name yet, but anyway, here's the child. So one day she decides to take a bath and she goes and tells this boy, don't let anyone disturb my bath. I'm going to go and really just have a spa day. So don't let anybody interrupt me. So she goes and she has her spa day and this boy is sitting there, you know, he's, he's the mod, he's the personification of duty. So Shiva, of course, at this time he comes back he tries to go into the house and he sees this boy standing there keeping him out. And he goes, excuse me, this is my house. I'm trying to go and see my wife. And the boy said, my mother said no one can go into to see her. No one. And he goes, I am your husband. And she goes, not even you can go and disturb my mother. I have explicit instructions. So Shiva, you know what he likes to do? He likes to meditate, dance, and kill things. So he cuts his head off. You know, cuts this boy's head off. And he storms into the house and he says, you know what I just saw, babe? There was this guy outside. He didn't let me come into this house. Don't worry, I killed him. And she's like, you fool. That's your own son. Don't you know what you've done? I created him out of the love of my heart. And Shiva, of course, he... He breaks, you know, he's he's so in love. He's a romantic guy sometimes. He's like, oh no, I will make this right. Don't worry. So he runs outside, he grabs the body and him and his army of goblins start to run through the forest. And he said, I need to put a head back on this thing. First thing he sees is an elephant. You know, so he takes the elephant's head and he sticks it on the boy. And that's Ganesha's origin story. So there you have it. Ganesha, often depicted as the son of Lord Shiva. He usually has a bit of a belly. I'm sure you've noticed. And the reason being is Ganesha is associated to the root chakra, mulla And the root chakra is all about embodiment and earthliness. So Ganesha has kind of a hefty frame that he's very happy and comfortable with. He's kind of like the laughing Buddha to convey to you that sense of physicality, you know, strong physique. But he's a very gentle deity. He's associated to learning and wisdom. And his title is the remover of obstacles. But the way he removes obstacles is by going around them. As my teacher, Viveka Schwartz says, he lifts them with his trunk gently. How beautiful. And um, Ganesha, the obstacles that he removes are obstacles in your learning and your understanding. So when Ganesha is invoked, It's often to eradicate confusion. If you're studying yoga philosophy and there's something that you just don't get, Ganesha energy is the one that you call upon in order to understand it, make light of that which confused you. So there's a story about Ganesha. Once a sage had a profound revelation and he wanted to write it down, but he didn't have a pen. It was like that SpongeBob episode where he drops the pen and the pencil in the water. Anyways, so the sage didn't have the the pen. Ganesha appears, breaks off a little bit of his tusk, and gives it to the scribe to use as a pen. My theory is that this is a story about the oral culture of India. Since India didn't write a lot of things down, there were oral culture. We passed things on as songs. I think since the elephant has a really strong memory, this is a story about how um, early philosophy in India was passed on through the elephant's memory. You know, I don't know. But anyway, that's why he's usually depicted with only one tusk. Beautiful story about Ganesha. He has a brother, Muruga. We won't really talk about him today. But him and Muruga often have little competitions. And one day, Ganesha and Muruga, they get into a fight. They say, oh, who can circle around the world faster? And, you know, Muruga rides a peacock. He's like lightning bolt kid. He's very athletic. Ganesha, his steed is a mouse, which, by the way, represents a restless mind. So Ganesha steps on the mouse because he subdues a restless mind through wisdom. So anyway, Ganesha has a mouse. Muruga has a lightning fast peacock. Um, of course, Muruga is going to win the race. So Muruga says, are you sure you want to do this? Ganesha says, let's go. And they do their wagers. Muruga says, okay, the one who makes three circles around the universe first is the winner. Ready, set, go. Ganesha speeds out. Oh, sorry. Muruga speeds out. You know what Ganesha does? He goes and finds his parents and makes three circles around them. (laughs) And the beauty there, you know, it's like the beauty of devotion of a son to the family. But more esoterically, yeah, I'll work smarter, not harder. More esoterically, it's the understanding that your inner universe is the one more deserving of your exploration than the outer universe. You know? So you have it. You've got Ganesha, you've got Shiva. Now Parvati can be worshipped as Parvati. When she is seen as Parvati, she is the personification of chastity, womanhood, uh, duty, um, uh, moderation. She is, in a Parvati form, like a good Indian woman, you know. But Parvati becomes interesting when you see her in her other forms. So one of Parvati's forms is Durga. Durga is the militant form of Parvati. So Ganesha removes obstacles gently right? Durga pierces through obstacles with ferocity. Durga is depicted as sitting on a tiger or a lion. When you need some discipline in your spiritual practice, Durga will give you the courage to stick with it every single day. You know, Durga is very powerful, very fierce deity. She has lots of weapons in her many arms, you know. So Durga is a deity that you might invoke when you want some courage, some fire, some power. Durga is a demon slayer. So if you've got darknesses inside of you, complexes, um, shit you want to kill, Shiva might be too busy. He might be meditating. Parvati, though, never forgets her children. So when she appears to help you kill your demons, she appears as Durga, riding the tiger, giving you courage with many weapons. Each of the weapons represents a faculty, discrimination, To know what's right and what's wrong for you in your spiritual practice, all of that. So Durga, that's one form of Parvati. Another form of Parvati, um, and this is a little bit more tantric, is Kali. So Kali is like Durga times two. Where Durga is fierce, she's still kind of um, approachable. You know, she wears her sari, very beautiful, long hair, um, still like like a very womanly presence. Just a badass woman, you know, warrior queen. Kali, with her tongue sticking out, she's painted blue. She has, not painted blue, she is blue. She has ash all over her. In the older depictions of Kali, she's actually black. Kali Shankar Shini, she's called. Kali is the devourer, much like Kronos in the Greek myth. Um, or Father Time, or the Grim Reaper. Kali, her name, Kala, by the way, literally means time. So Kala is Sanskrit for time. So Kali represents time. Time is the great destroyer. And time is fierce, right? Time means you're going to die. The people you love are going to die. Everything you love in this world will decay and corrode. In time, there is sickness. There is death. You know what Kali says to you? If you truly love God and you think God is everywhere, why should she not be here too? You know, why would you reject this aspect of me? And you know, Grace and I often talk about um, the, the mermaid and the minotaur and the idea of there are two mothers, the spring mother and the winter mother. Most cultures have a goddess personifying both sides of nature. You know, there's a beautiful spring goddess and kind of a fierce winter goddess. Kali can be seen in that sense. She is a fierce goddess, but in a deeper sense, she's there to kill your preconceived notions of self. You call on Durga to kill your demons. You call on Kali to kill the imposter that is your ego. She is very heavy duty, very fierce, and often uses suffering as a way of grace. So if you call upon Kali, you're calling upon the ferocity in yourself, the take-no-prisoners approach that actually welcomes suffering. In fact, might even seek it out as a way to see where you're not. If you're in a yoga practice and you're doing Virabhadrasan 3 and your standing leg starts to shake and the thigh is heating up, that's tapas, right? Heat. It's burning away the bullshit. Kali is there to show you the functionality of suffering. So we've got Kali, we've got Durga, we've got Parvati. We will talk about Vishnu and Lakshmi and Saraswati in part two. Today, I just wanted to give you the family of Shiva. Um, I left out Muruga and maybe we'll add him in sometime later. But in closing, I just want to give you four mantras. Here's how you use a mantra. Each of these deities, like I explained before, represents a certain psychic force in you different psychic forces are valuable to you at different times in your life when it's time for action you probably want to call upon your durga nature when you're suffering you probably want to call upon your kali nature to see the meaning in suffering when you are sitting to meditate and you need some focus and renunciation, you want to call upon Shiva. They each have their specific function and their specific place. That being said, you might gravitate towards one or the other. So I'm a huge Saivite, but at different times, for instance, you'll see the Durga behind me. Today I needed some Durga, so there she is. You might go out and get some bronze sculptures. And bronze is a very powerful uh symbol for Hindu deities. They are, um, and we'll wrap up in just a bit, sorry to go over a tiny bit, but just to close, bronze is often the preferred material for crafting images of deities. It's conducive to spiritual vibration. Often you buy a deity, a bronze sculpture of the deity, and you install it in your house. That's one way to bring in the power of that deity. So go and get a bronze version of that deity or even a tapestry or an image or any picture of that deity, install it somewhere in the house. Even if all you do is that, you're bringing that energy into your life. So you can ignore it. It will always be there in the corner of your eye and it will summon from deep within you the corresponding psychic effect. To get the best results, though, you should spend some time with this deity as if it was a separate being. This in yoga we call Ishvara Pranidhana, devotion to the divine. This is where you might perhaps bring flowers to your altar. In a way, you're trying to cajole that force inside you to come to your aid, much like the Vedic seers of old used to do with nature. So you bring the flowers, maybe a bowl of water and flowers. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna asks Krishna, how should I worship you? Krishna says, even a leaf is fine (laughs) if it comes from your heart. There is no right or wrong way to worship. After all, you're working with yourself. You know? Who's keeping score? So by installing a deity, by kind of you know bathing the deity, this is called Abhisheham. It's often done once every week with milk, honey, and water. Milk can be a little sticky. Um, so I recommend just a little honey and water and just dumping it over the deity. It's very poetic to see the water splash. The water symbolizes your subconscious mind pouring over a specific form. It's very powerful. Now, if you don't have a bronze sculpture, if you're not working with an altar, the way to bring the deity to you is through a mantra. So we'll close on this final point. If you are in a party, it's a crowded room. There's sound everywhere and somebody calls your name. Isn't it curious that you immediately give them your attention? As if your mind was able to pick out the sound Austin in a room of a billion sounds. Crazy. But there's a filtering mechanism in your mind able to isolate certain sounds. That being said, there are certain sounds that by intoning them, you can bring these forces into you. So a quick demonstration. Try to make the sound lam. Lam. Maybe even longer, like lam, lam. The way the tongue strikes the roof of your mouth and rolls off, if you've been practicing yoga a while and you're quite sensitive in your pelvic floor, you might notice a slight lifting up of the perineum. It's called mullabhad, but you'll notice a little activity there. So by pressing the tongue to the roof of the mouth, something happens in your body. It stimulates your root chakra when you say lam or gam. So this is a little bit of yogic linguistics, um, but each of the syllables creates a certain neurological effect in your being. Therefore, intelligently using syllables in a certain way will bring certain psychic effects. So if you intend to call upon Ganesha, you use the Ganesha mantra. And this is the hugest development of the science of mantra. The mantra and Ganesha are one and the same. The name is the thing in this sense. Does that make sense? Since Ganesha is nothing more than a certain psychic effect, and since that psychic effect can be brought about by certain sounds, the sound is the deity as far as the psychic effect is concerned. So the name, the name of God, is the way to bring God into your life. Each deity has a specific mantra to bring it into your life. So I'll give you three and we'll close. For Ganesha, should you ever decide decide to work with this very benevolent, sweet remover of obstacles, who shows up to help you work your way through confusion, who is there to bring you into your body and guide you in your learning, who is there to subdue your restless mind. The mantra, here it is, Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha. I'll type it in the chat box in a little bit. Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha. Om, seed syllable, it potentizes the mantra. Gam, as we discussed, opens your root chakra. Ganapatiye, the name, Namaha, salute. Saluting Lord Ganesha. Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha. How do you work with this? Just chant it. Say it once. Intone it. Om Gam Ganapatiye Namaha. Couple of times, you know. For Shiva, and this is a really powerful mantra. This is like a heavyweight mantra. For Shiva, the mantra that you can use, it's called the Mahamritunjaya Mantra. And it goes, and you've probably heard me chant it many times, but it goes, Om Triyambagam Yajamahe Sugandim Pushti Vardhanam Urdhvarkamiva Baddhanam Brityor Mukshiyam Amritat. That is the Mahamritunjaya mantra. I'll type it in. When you chant these mantras, you can feel a shift. Something happens. Other ways to get to Shiva, Namah Shivaya. You can just chant, Om Namah Shivaya, Namah Shivaya. His name, you know, sing it, whatever. Um, Just say the name brings the force. So that's enough for today, I think. Sorry, we've gone 10 minutes over. I'll give that time back to you someday. Um, Let's just close out today um, with a mantra. So which one do you want? Drop it in the chat box. Which deity would you like to invoke right now? Uh, not Durga because she's already here and if I chanted the Durga mantra, that'd be a bit too much Durga for me. <laughs> but we'll close out with the mantra. Okay. I'll just type one in. Okay, that's it. Type it right here. All right. So you're welcome to join me for the mantra. We'll chant it three times, and we'll close with the collective Om. Um. And if you'd like, we can do some call and response twice, and then we'll do it together a third time. Oh. <laughs> um. Yeah. Over the heart and bowing the head. Thank you for another great episode of For the Love of Yoga. To get in on the discussion, you can find me at patreon.com/yoga with Nish for more episodes and more content. Stick around for some question and answers throughout the end of the rest of this podcast and I hope to see you again in the next episode. Peace, peace, peace. All right, everybody. Thank you for a beautiful class. As always, we'll open the floor for any questions. We've got some new faces today. Hello, Kristen. Hello, Casey. Good to see you. For oh, sure. for sure.
1: Hi, I had a question. Okay. So the other day I was driving home and in the car, I was just like meditating, I guess, for a few, like less than two minutes. And I saw this image of this person meditating, and they had like I found out later it was Hanuman, and they had like the like the mouth the blip thing like where it comes out like that you know what I mean? Okay, so I like found out that it was him afterwards. I've never seen this um, deity or god before, and I was wondering if you could explain what he symbolizes a bit.
0: Oh, Hanuman. Beautiful. I was saving the Rama, Krishna, Vishnu, Hanuman stuff for next week because they're also a family. Hanuman is often seen as the incarnation of Shiva. You know, so there is a relationship between Hanuman and Shiva. Hanuman is the deity of devotion. His role, yes, he's a monkey god. His role in the Ramayana is as faithful servant of Shiva. Hanuman is a powerful yogi. He can grow big, he can grow small, he can jump over great distances. When he was a child, he thought the moon was an apple or a fruit, mango or something, so he jumped to, sorry, the sun, he thought the sun was a fruit, so he jumped to grab it. You know, he's very cute. Childlike deity, very loving and devotional. He's often seen opening his heart. I don't know if you've seen that image, but he's standing, he's very buff. He's opening his heart, and in there you see Rama and Sita. The idea is that he is a faithful servant. So worshipping Hanuman appeals to people who are very devoted to mostly Vaishnava faiths, devotees of Rama. Devotees of Krishna, devotees of Vishnu like to worship Hanuman because he is the way to get to Ram. You know, you want to cultivate in you those qualities of devotion. But yeah, he's a hero from the tale, the Ramayana. And if you want to learn more about Hanuman, that's the story. Tulsi translation is the best.
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: Great question. Hanuman.
2: I just wanted to mention something that you talked about like um earlier and how you're saying the thing about like when you like practice like nonviolence and like animals can sort of sense that off of you and stuff and like a couple years ago, maybe like three years ago, I have this friend Julian who he um he ended up moving from here to, like, Costa Rica and moving in with, like, this, um, like, this family, but they live, like, in the jungle. So, like, n- not the jungle, but, like, the fort, like, you know what I mean, like, in the mountains. And he, when he came back to visit his grandparents, I hung out with him. And, you know, like, a couple years ago, I didn't really know what, like, any of anything was, and it was just a a really funny coincidence because he brought up a time when he was in this like sauna that they had made and you know he was kind of tripping but like that doesn't matter that's not doesn't really tell to the story but he got out of the sauna like feeling really hot so he went to lay in like the grass because the grass was like cooler and when he went to go lay in the grass he like all here got bitten by, like, red ants and stuff. And then, like, he ran into the water and, like, it went away, whatever. And then he said, like, he was, like, that was the last experience that any animal or, like, insect or anything has ever attacked me. And, like, even when I sat next to him on, like, this tree, I I noticed I was getting attacked by like literally like mosquitoes and ants and like not one was going towards him and I was like bro like that's like I don't like he was like no like you don't understand like once you like truly live in harmony with like everything and like you and I like I was like damn like I don't like he said it has a lot to do with like sugar and the things that we eat and stuff but like on a real level he couldn't have done it if he hadn't reached that, like, you know, like that, like, I guess vibration, like that you're talking about. And like, I, I just thought that was something I should mention because it was really cool. And oh. like,
0: it was wild. Christina always hooking us up with the real world stories. <laughs> I love that, Christina, almost everyone has had experiences in their life um, that validate yoga philosophy but not a lot of us remember them. But with you, Christina, every lesson, you're always like, that is exactly what happened when that occurred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting a
2: lot to, like, confirm that all of this is, like, real, I guess. It, it's like confirmation, like, all right, you're doing it right. So, yeah.
0: Oh, It's, it's funny because to your point about the food, it... You can think of it physiologically where like, oh, the blood is sweeter or contains certain things for animals. But, you know, it probably makes more sense to explain that vibrationally. Like we were talking, you know, the diet and all that stuff. Like it probably contributes to the vibe that he's putting out.
2: No, yeah, for sure. Because he came back here and he wasn't really eating how he ate in Costa Rica. And the bugs still weren't bothering him. So I think it definitely had more to do with like him and his like vibration for sure.
0: In uh, Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, he's sitting with his guru. And, you know, in India, they sleep on the floor and there are a lot of mosquitoes, tropical country. So he noticed that while he was, you know, being pestered by mosquitoes, Yogananda's guru, no mosquitoes whatsoever. He would stay awake all night trying to figure out why the mosquitoes didn't come to Sri Yukteswar. And one day as a joke, he woke up and Yuktashwar was like covered with mosquitoes. I don't know. I think the story is like he was playing with him or something, but his his statement was, get rid of mosquito consciousness. (laughs) That's funny. If you want to get rid of mosquitoes, get rid of mosquito consciousness. (laughs) Thank you, Christina. Any other questions, anyone?
3: No. I have a question. Yes, Casey. First off, I'm so happy to be here. You're such a gifted teacher. Like truly, it, it just flows out of you. And I'm just very honored to be here. And to just, I could listen to you for hours. When you said it, I'm so sorry we went 10 minutes over. I was like, it's over already? Um, So thank you. I just want to say thank you. But I loved Eden's story about um, Hanuman. Hanuman's one of my favorites. Like when he rips his heart open, he's like, you are written on my heart. I love you unconditionally. Like you don't need to give me anything. I just love you. That's one of my favorite stories of all time. But I thought it was interesting, Eden, how you said you didn't know about Hanuman before you saw him and about, I would say two or three years ago, I had this same experience with Kali. Didn't know who she was, didn't know what she looks like. I was in a cranial sacral therapy. So I was pretty much meditating while I was getting work done. And I saw this blue woman and I said, I could hear myself saying, oh, I wonder who that is. And then a voice. I don't know if it was me. I don't know if it was her. I don't know if it was just energy, but it came through and it was just Kali, Kali, Kali. So we were at the end of the session and I forgot, I don't know how I forgot about, but we're talking about other things I experienced. And I was like, oh my goodness, I saw this blue woman. And I kept hearing the name Kali. And of course we Google it and Kali's blue and it looks exactly like the woman I saw. And I was wondering when when they come to you and especially like, I didn't know who she was. Like I had no clue. Are they sending a message by what they represent? Like Kali represents... No, i always saw her as like the destruction of ego or the false self or the conditioned self am i seeing her they coming to us to give us a message by who they are and who they represent to our world or their cultures great
0: question casey that is a beautiful am i saying your name correctly
3: casey yeah you're saying it perfectly
0: (laughs) beautiful question if i might guess I don't know, last week we talked about reincarnation and the week before that we were talking a little bit about reincarnation as well. If I might guess, it's likely that you probably had a past life very recently working with Kali, probably as a follower of Sri Ramakrishna, if not Ramakrishna himself, I don't know. But you maybe in a previous life were an adherent of Kali and now at this time in your life, that's bubbling up to your consciousness from your storehouse of samskara, we call it, from the impressions of your various lives, that's where it's coming from. So in one sense of the word, the deity is coming to you because it's choosing this time in your life to manifest. And that could be because you've already worked with the deity. You know. So another understanding of it is, as you suggested, perhaps having never worked with the deity before, this is or just happens to be the time in your life where this deity is contacting you. It's beautiful because you know a lot of people go to the gods. It's always very beautiful when the gods come to them. And in that same sense, even like as you're driving, when you see Hanuman, that's that deity coming to you. Um, the principle is joraki. It's concentrated mind. Once you think about something or, or once something needs to express itself, it shows. It shows up everywhere around you. Like if it's time for you to practice yoga, you will be dragged into a yoga studio, bound hand and foot and cast into the yoga studio.
3: <laughs> I just got into I'm taking my 300 hour in Kundalini. Cool. I've never, I've never done Kundalini before ever. And I, I just kept seeing it everywhere and being called to it and called to it. And now I cannot go anywhere without seeing Kundalini. And that's interesting. That lines up with it too. It, it's some things we're so worried about, like, I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose and what's my path. But if you just like pay attention and calm <laughs> it's there, it's like, uh, hello. Like I've been here, I've been showing you. And it's interesting when you just like stop and, and look how you notice, but thank you for sharing it, Cause I never, I, I of course studied her. Then I was like, there's gotta be a reason, but I've never, I never made the connection. Maybe it was a past life or, anything like that so thank you so much for that clarity i really appreciate it
0: thank you for that question it was incredibly insightful and a beautiful thought that a deity shows itself up when you need to learn the lessons of that deity or when you're dealing with something in your life that requires that energy as an aid how beautiful when yogananda had the vision of the divine mother she said to him it is i who have loved you in the guise of many mothers so pretty I love, I love it, doing your teacher training. Welcome, welcome to the the Sangha.
3: I also, I don't want to take up any more time, but I, I would love to, and this is probably old news for everybody who's here, I would love to donate and, and pay for this knowledge. So maybe at the end, if you could put it in the chat, how I do that, because I don't know how to, but I would love that information. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I receive with deep humility and gratitude from one arm to the other, from one hand to the other. Thank you. Here, here. But uh, it's an interesting thing that Ramdas. Ramdas always says he. Uh, what's the quote? He says always that you are a completely determined being, that you. It's kind of like Jesus saying, "I can of my own self do nothing. All that I do, my Father does through me." The idea that you never have to choose what you're going to do with your life because you will be drawn, pulled, forced into that which you have to do. You can tarry, you can delay, you can languish by the wayside, but sooner or later it's going to happen. And, um, he says in the recent movie he made, it's called Becoming Nobody. It's a really beautiful film. The Ram Dass film, Becoming Nobody. He says, everything you need is right here in this moment, pointing you to the next moment. So it's, it's a crazy thought to think that any of us who might be thinking, what should we do with our life? Who should we become? What path should we take? Um, the answer is right now in this room somewhere (laughs) it's like where's waldo
1: (laughs) i think that's a really comforting thought (laughs) because like sometimes i feel afraid that i won't be able to like live my dream you know stuff like that that everyone feels at least some point and it's just like It's very comforting because I believe that I really do believe that it's just sometimes that fear just slips in. But, you know, (laughs) like, it's really nice to have the thought that, like, you can't stop yourself from becoming who you're meant to be. You know what I mean? Like, as much as you, you know, delay or whatever, even unconsciously, like, it's not going to there's not a world where you can't, you know, live up to the fullest potential of you. You know what I mean? Not also, on the subject of, like, reincarnation past life stuff, like, last week. Okay, so this is crazy. A few days ago, I was meditating, and I was chanting, actually. Um, I was chanting the Kwan Yin. It's a Kwan Yin chant, Om Mani Padme Han. And I was doing that, like, off and on with, like, um, like, a three-hour Tibetan chanting thing on YouTube. And I just got this scene in my head. Where I was this like Chinese princess walking through this forest path over a koi pond, and then <laughs> and then into like uh, the forest on the palace grounds or something, and specifically like the 1300 AD era to this big 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 like lion dog statue, like it was massive, and I was praying to the statue to protect the um fam the family i had from this like rebellion or uprising and something like that and because i felt like the townspeople at least in this like vision i felt like i was praying because the townspeople were like taking over and like rebelling and then there was this other person coming in too to like take over the throne and i looked it up afterwards and that's exactly when like um, I think it was some Mongol or something dynasty ended in the Ming dynasty um, began right at that point and I was researching it and that's exactly what happened like the townspeople rebelled and like the um, there's there was another guy who came in and took over and stuff and there was an actual princess of the emperor and it was so crazy like right after you talked about that I was like whoa. Wow. <laughs> Thank,
0: but, yeah, you. I <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, because, you know, last week, um, our guarantee was that if we meditate, we will, one way or another, encounter our past lives. Thank yeah. you for sharing that story, because it's so validating.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, it was crazy. I was thinking after that, I was like, he literally just said that exact thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. Wow, I have Ming Dynasty princesses in the past. <laughs> It's just priestesses of Kali and Ming Dynasty princesses. Oh.
1: well, I'm happy to have you too. You're so great.
0: And an ant that wandered some somewhere across the, the meditation mat of Lord Shiva.
1: Um, I
2: just wanted to like mention something because I feel like I haven't really let it get to me like for a pretty long time, and it's. Not something I think will get to me a lot, but today you were talking about like, um, like all the um, deities and how they compare to these different like um, other symbolic figures in other religions, and like it's hard because it's like okay, like I was raised Muslim, and like I still, I mean. I still pray like that and I still practice a lot of the things, but then I went to a Catholic like school growing up. So like, I still like if I feel like unsafe at night, I'll still be like, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus or like, I'll like call on Jesus and stuff, but then my mom's Hindu. So then there's this whole like other section that I'm like, like, you know what I mean? Working with like deities and like meditation and stuff and like like it like i feel like it's such a um like on a real level it's not really a clash because it's like you're still calling on the one source but i feel like like i don't really know what my question was i was just like i think i'm just really confused about that because i don't think I feel guilty for it but then a part of me is like okay when I'm calling on Jesus then I'm calling on like Michael and like all the archangels and like I'm working with them and then like if I start like I'll still like do the little things towards the other things like I still I'll still pray like that like habitual stuff but like it's like like phases but it's like cycling phases that like it's like I can't stick to, like, one path. But I i don't know if I have to, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just wondering if any of you had, like, any, like, insight or whatever on that. Because I'm pretty confused. I'm having an identity crisis.
0: <laughs> Sounds like your life is the history of India. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Muslim father, Hindu mother, went to Catholic school. That's, you just, you're a personification yeah. person of our national, like, life. <laughs> My mother too, she's Catholic and, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of India is that you can walk down the streets in Kolkata, pass a mosque, and in the mosque, see hindus hanging out with muslims and then pass the ramakrishna center and then pass the saint francis you know it's it's beautiful but um when the prophet muhammad um i think it's called a misraj he rides a horse baraka and then he travels through the ninth heavens and he in each heaven meets a judaic prophet you know he meets abraham and he meets a whole bunch of prophets and they all pray together i think that story is so beautiful because jesus He's Prophet Isa, right? There's Jesus in the Islamic faith. You have Prophet Isa, and Prophet Muhammad follows Prophet Isa. And so not to negate Prophet Isa. And that's the be- the kind of a beautiful concept there. I love the work of Kabir, particularly, and maybe he might be some solace to you, because Kabir is growing up in a time where the Mughals have just established an Islamic empire, So you can imagine the cognitive dissonance of growing up in a, like a yogic Hindu family interacting with Sufis and Muslims. And I'm sure he was incredibly confused too, but perhaps the the point is to continue to saturate yourself so much in all the scriptures such that their distinctions fade away in the light of their shared truth. Ramakrishna, you know, the Saint Ramakrishna, you might want to study his life because he was enlightened through the path of tantric yoga. Then he got enlightened again through the path of non-duality. Then he gave up all Hinduism, dressed like a Muslim, hung out in mosques, became enlightened as a Muslim, and then ditched all of that and became enlightened as a Christian. He's an incredibly eccentric fellow, but his life is living testament that all paths lead to the same place. Truth is one, it's its ways are many, but it's true. In the pursuit of truth, as you smear yourself thin over many different paths, it can become confusing. There's only two solutions, unfortunately. Solution number one is to go really deep into one path. The Yoga Sutras suggests this. Dig one deep hole, don't dig a bunch of shallow holes. That's one solution. I don't think that's the one for you, though, Christina. Because your mind is a very um, broad, it takes in all things. It's, It's a very Indian kind of approach of just what does everything have to offer and how can we. In that sense, the only other solution is to go so deep into each faith, you know. And the difficulty there is that there are social relationships in your life that perhaps affect your relationship to each of those faiths.
2: my my parents are pretty accepting and they're the only ones that like I care about so like I don't think that part is going to be an issue if anything they're just going to be worried that like I'm going to lose my mind because I'm studying so many religions but like that's my major so like they're probably just going to be like all right like she's just studying and I'll be like yeah
0: yes, yes. questioning
2: my existence <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, Also, perhaps in in final note, study the mystics of that religion, you know, so Mm -hmm. work with Sufis when you're working with Islam, work with the Mm -hmm. Sufi writers and thinkers like Sufi Bistami and and, uh, Nasruddin and that kind of stuff. When you're working with Hindus, work with yogis. And when you're working with Christians, work with uh, St. John of the Cross, um, Aquinas, like mystics or or, or, um, uh, my favorite, Margareta Peretta, who you remind me a lot of, actually.
2: okay I'm definitely gonna do that it's funny because earlier today I was with my sister and like I don't know what we were talking about but I was like I need to ask my dad for the Quran so I think like that was kind of a sign like that's the first one to like just go deeper into so I'm definitely gonna do that for sure
0: good good good
2: thank Thank you you for that that helped so much just great Confirmation. Wonderful. All right, I'm gonna go now. But this was super insightful. I love you all. Have a good day. Have a good night.
0: Bye, guys. You, Christina, thank you.
2: Um, I just want to say one last thing before we sign off. This is my boyfriend, Daniel. By the way, I talk about this talk, like a lot, a lot. So. Um, It was about time he like came on to, but it's crazy. Like you literally say synchronicities or like in this class, there's so many synchronicities every single time. And it's literally like mind blowing. Like the Durga, like, how did you know? Like literally like, <laughs> I'm like, I was still shook. Like, like half an hour after, like I kept saying, like I'm still shook <laughs> about the Durga thing. Like, literally, I don't even know. But that was really cool. And um, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to head off. But I'll see you on Wednesday.
0: Thank you. Nothing special, but I'm happy that the touch of the miraculous can delight you, as it should. <laughs> bye, 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 Daniel. Bye-bye, Anisha. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I will sign off too. Bye. Thank you so much.
0: Good time. Farewell, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this beautiful night. Farewell, Lily. Farewell, Eden. Farewell, Casey. Have a lovely and safe rest of your week. I'm Mara. Take care.